John chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold, by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, and they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, because they don't know the voice of of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. And so he said again, most assuredly I say to you, and here's the crux of it, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you have life and that more abundantly. And of course, these grand words, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Of all the I am declarations in John, and there's seven, right? Uh, To me, this one speaks more to me than all the rest about our relationship with God. And I don't want to disconnect it from the others because I think all seven form a totality of who God is and how we relate to him, right? So when Jesus stands up and says, I'm the light of the world, right? I understand that like his coming brought light into a dark world and his teachings gave us truth and truth sets us free. And I've been a beneficiary of that and so have you. So so I get it. You know, he's the light of the world. We don't walk in darkness. He's healed our blindness. Uh, when he says that he is the bread of life, I get it, right? You know, for 21 years, I ate bread alone, and it didn't fill me. And uh, now every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, and, and get this, he's the word of God. He's tangible. He, he took on flesh, so it's beautiful. Uh, later, we're going to see, I am the vine, you are the branches. I get that. If I stay connected to the vine, I'm going to bear fruit. But it's this one that I am the great shepherd who really shows us the God that we're looking for. There's a God we've always been looking for. There's a God we hoped always had existed. And Jesus is the one. He is the good shepherd. Uh, If the Bible or history has told us anything, it's that man longs for the spiritual, longs for the supernatural. We are incurably religious. How do I know? Well, think about this. Think of all the harm that's been done in the name of God, right? All the wars, all the crusades, all the fighting over land and money and fiefdoms and, and failed leadership, right? Just in our lifetime, we've had the 9-11 situation, which was fueled by religion. We've had, you know, all the abuse of children that we've walked through and now science and academia are telling us that God is dead and we don't need any of that, that we can jettison this idea of God in scripture. And yet for all of that, you look around the globe and even in in developing countries and in prosperous countries, spirituality is not down, it is up. And so man is religious and we know this, right? God has put eternity in our hearts. We are not only, you know, bodies, we are spirits, souls, and we have bodies. And so this metaphor of Jesus, I am the good shepherd, I think is the greatest metaphor I've ever heard. R.C. Sproul, who was a brilliant theologian, said most people do not know the God they're rejecting. Anybody fit that category before Jesus? 
You know, I didn't know the God I was rejecting. I didn't know nothing about him. I knew about religion, but I didn't know about this great God. I was blinded to that truth. Uh, Satan has a wonderful PR department. Anybody figure that out? You know, he's doing a masterful job of blinding the eyes of individuals lest they believe. Again, I was part of that category. You know, I bought into the lie from the dominant culture. And isn't it funny how whether it's songs or music or film or academia, like, like the world can't get anything together. But the one thing they can get together is this agenda that God's not worth serving or he doesn't exist. And if he is worth serving, he's going to let you down or you're going to be some, become something you don't want to be. Now, take, for instance, what I am, a pastor. Uh, when people ask me what I do, I kind of cringe because the caricature of me, especially in film, is like a dweeb or a milk toast, right? You see a pastor in a TV show or, or in a movie, he's always like this backwards guy that has no idea what he's doing. So one day I was picking up dry cleaning and uh, making the transaction. The lady goes, you're, 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 I'm like, yeah, I'm the pastor of Calvary Chapel. She goes, you're, that's it. She said, I went to your church. I saw David Kim, the violin player from the Philadelphia Orchestra. I'm like, yeah. She goes, oh, you have a great church and, and had a great time. She goes, you don't look like pastor. <laughs> and I said, well, what do pastors look like? And I told her about the disciples. These were rugged fishermen with big biceps. Peter could carry, you know, 50 fish in a net. And they were called the sons of thunder. How did we ever get to this caricature? But see, that's what Satan has blinded the minds of people to believe. R.C. Sproul said the greatest need in people today is to discover the true identity of God. What's he really like? Who is he? Sproul said if non-believers discovered the true identity of God, they would call a truce with him. And believers, it would revitalize and revolutionize their lives. So today, as we look at John 10, the good shepherd, I'm going to reveal to you, or the Holy Spirit's going to reveal to you, the true identity of the God we've always been looking for. Now, before we get started, there is one problem with the metaphor. Um, when's the last time you saw a sheep? When's the last time you met a shepherd? Uh, I grew up in inner city, inner city Philadelphia. I never saw a sheep. I've never met a shepherd. Now, I've met him in the Arab world, in the Middle East as I've traveled. And, but, you know, I've never met one in a Wawa. I've never been golfing and ask somebody what they do for a living and they tell me they're a shepherd. It just doesn't happen. I don't know anything about shepherding except what I've read. Uh, we're a technological society, information-driven society. We don't see sheep and shepherd anymore. But the metaphor still is the best. It's lasted for thousands of years, and in much of the world, it still makes sense. Uh, the first thing that we draw out from the metaphor is that to the shepherd, the sheep have tremendous value. And that's the first thing you need to understand about God. You have tremendous value before him. In the Bible, sheep, shepherds, and flocks are mentioned 700 times. It's the single greatest metaphor. Nothing else comes close. And in the ancient world, it was a prized commodity. Um, there were times, epics in history, where the rug trade was a big commodity, or silk, or you know, gold and silver have always been a commodity. Today, it's oil. Uh, but at one time, it was sheep. Um, the Bible talks about the Jews one time, Israel seizing 600,000 sheep from the Midianites. Now, when I read stuff like that, I think, 600,000 sheep? Who counted them all? He probably slept really well that night, right? Who transported them and fed them? And, oh, it's staggering. The Assyrian king Sennacherib um, 
took 800,000 sheep from enemy lands. Ahab, the wicked king, demanded 100,000 sheep as tributes from Midian. Solomon, when he built the temple, sacrificed 120,000 sheep, like up in smoke. And uh, Israel, in just a regular cycle of feast days in a common year, would sacrifice 350,000 lambs. If you were an animal activist in this day, man, you get no traction. Um, That's a lot of sheep. But these sheep, as numerous as they were, had tremendous value. Look back at verse 14 of what we just read. Jesus said, I know my sheep. Verse 3 and verse 4, it says, my sheep know my voice. I know my sheep. Now, I said earlier, I grew up in the inner city, almost never saw a sheep. How's this for irony? The day I went to college, my mom divorced my stepdad and bought 11-acre property in New England. And because my mom lived in rented homes all her life, she always wanted property, and she loved animals. She brought pheasants and geese and turkey, and she brought two sheep. And I'm like, Mom, you've never done this before. You're getting older. You sure you want to take care of all these animals? Why do you have all these animals? Why are you getting sheep? And she said, well, I've got 11 acres of grass to cut, and I don't want to hire a landscaper, and these sheep are going to eat the grass. But then she bought a ram, and you probably know where this is going. She turned around one day and had 50 sheep. I'm not lying. And uh, her 11-acre property, which was once lush and verdant, uh, when all these sheep came along, kind of looked like Pride Rock after Scar took over in The Lion King. And she's going out buying feed and feeding them because there's no more grass. So we actually had an intervention. Can you believe this? We had an intervention and said, Mom, you got to get rid of these sheep. And by the way, you own a restaurant. Rack of lamb, lamb chops, lamb stew. Come on, get the picture. Took two years. You know why? You know why she refused? She named them all. So my mom had a barn. And you think about my kids. Think about this. You talk about an experience. My kids had New England vacations, right? And one Christmas Eve, we're at my mom. She has all the sheep in the barn. It's cold out, but it's warm in there. All that, all that fur, and they're in there. We're feeding them and all. And my mom knew everyone by name. She knew their imperfections. She could tell different things about them. She had bottle-fed most of them. And because she knew them, she didn't want to destroy them. And that's what the Bible's saying here. This is God's relationship to you and me. He knows us by name. And the Bible brings this out over and over again. I think one of the clearest places where Jeremiah has this revelation, where he begins to write the book we know is the book of Jeremiah. In chapter 1, verse 5, he says, The word of the Lord came to me and said, Jeremiah, before I knit you together in your mother's womb, I knew you and ordained you to be a prophet unto the nations. Is that incredible? That means every human baby gestating in the womb is being knit and fashioned by God. And God in his omniscience already knows us thousands of years before we were born from eternity. And the things that we're going to walk in in our calling. No one knows us like God. There's that wonderful interplay with Samuel who's going to be the first prophet of Israel. And he's hearing voices in his bedroom. He's like eight years old. And this old sage uh, prophet, priest, Eli, is saying, no, that's the voice of God. And this goes on three times. And a little boy is learning to be intimate with God. 
Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount told the people, don't worry about your life. Don't be anxious about food and clothing because, you know, two sparrows can't fall to the ground. They, they were the cheapest of all birds, the most worthless of birds. And Jesus said, two sparrows can't fall to the ground without God knowing he feeds the birds, he cares for them. How much more will he care for you? And then Jesus said something we only understand today through DNA. Every hair on our head is numbered. Your DNA code came from God. DNA should have been the smoking gun to end evolution. How they pulled a sleight of hand and even put that in their favor, I'll never know. And we're going to read later, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And then the book of Revelation says to the overcomer, Jesus is going to give us a little white stone. And on that white stone, there's going to be a name. Now, mine won't be Bob. I already know that name. But you know how married couples and people dating have like pet names for each other? Come on, fess up, right? You have pet names for each other. They're silly and stupid. God has a pet name for us, I believe. And I believe when you look at it, you'll be, oh my goodness. Tears. You know, I know there's no tears in heaven. But I hope there's joyful tears. When you look at that name and say, oh my gosh, there's, there's a God who knows me. There's a personal God. This is the God we've always been looking for. The last 30 years, you look at worship lyrics. Look at the, look at the songs we sang today. Most of our teaching has kind of skewed towards this personal God. And maybe we've gone too far. I, I don't know, but I think it's been a beautiful thing. Because I think it's biblical and I think it's true that there's a God who created us, longs to be intimate with us. It's revealed from Genesis to Revelation. But there is no revealer of this truth greater than the man after God's own heart, David. David was a shepherd king. The sweet psalmist of Israel. And only David could put it in these words. He was so gifted and talented. He was so in love with God. And he writes in Psalm 8, He said, Lord, oh Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. When I consider your heavens, uh, the stars, the moon, the things you've created, what is man that you were mindful of him? God, you put your glory above the heavens. In other words, this universe is so grand that he knew nothing of what we know today. This universe is so grand, God, that you would even think about us. David was overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. And then he writes... A psalm, many of you can quote, Psalm 139, where he says, O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You have known my sitting down and rising up. That's like God knows the mundane things of your life. You understand my thoughts afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down, and you're acquainted with all my ways. There's not a word on my tongue, but behold, you know it, O Lord. That's good and bad, by the way. You put a hedge in front of me and behind me. Such knowledge is too wonderful me. Where can I go from your spirit? If I go into the heavens, you're there. If I go to the, you know, the depths of the sea, you're there. For you form my inward parts. You cover me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. David is like overwhelmed that this omniscient God has turned his omniscience and focus and specializes in who we are. Is that incredible? Am I like the only one who kind of gets off on that? That God is probing me and thinking through with me, you know, where life is headed. You know, David is overwhelmed. I think most of us are overwhelmed. You know, the, the little things, my, my sitting down, my rising up, my insecurities, my, 
bad decisions, my good decisions. Like, like God is involved, David said. Anybody ever get overwhelmed by life? Anybody but me, right? Do you ever, ever have a day where like everything you did was for somebody else and yet everybody's mad at you and you go to bed like, why do I do this? Am I the only one? Well, there are days, right? And I think the human condition, right, if we all went to counseling, I think the number one thing would be brought out is most of us feel misunderstood most of the time. We really do, right? Because there's things we do and things we wear and, you know, all kinds of stuff we do in life that people see from a distance and they kind of misjudge us. And I think the cry of the heart is to be understood, um, in a marriage, right, most women, like, just want to be understood. And that's a lifelong, you know, project if you could ever get there. And, but every once in a while, this is the beauty of serving God, is to sit down with an open Bible and say, God, nobody knows me like you do. I feel misunderstood. And, you know, life doesn't make much sense right now. But, God, you know me. You know the real me. You know what's in my heart. Uh, by the way, the writer of the psalm, Felt like that, right? David, David was abandoned by everyone. Then he gets like these 60 ragtag guys that are following him and he's doing great things. And then they come to Ziklag one day and they find out the town's been burned, the women and children have been taken and all his men abandoned him. The Bible says David had to strengthen himself in God. God was the only one left. And there are days and there are times in life. Uh, Later, You know, you've collected all my tears and preserved them in a bottle. You've recorded them in a book. No one gets out of life unscathed. No one skates through life. There's suffering, there's pain. We talk about it often. But there is a God who's putting your tears in a bottle. Now, in the ancient world, when men went out to bottle, they would give their mom or their wife a vial. Honey, when I'm gone, put your tears in a bottle. When I come back, I'll know how much you love me and how much you care. You know, the God that you're looking for keeps your tears in a bottle. You not only have a weeping Savior, but he's aware of your weeping. And you look at this and, and it's just, you, you understand why David was so undone. That this powerful, omniscient God would be aware of our lives. Do you understand the value God has placed on you? Do you really believe you're the apple of his eye? Do you really believe he's involved? I hope you do. We need to be reminded of this. Um, The second thing is quite easy. Sheep know the voice of their shepherd. Jesus says this in the first four verses. Um, At nighttime, sheep have to be put in a pen because they're like a free meal, right? They can't fight. So... uh, In the ancient world, and still today, many times, shepherds would bring them to a stone enclave where they would reside with other flocks. And sometimes they had a door, and the shepherd could go and do his thing. Sometimes the shepherd would lie across the threshold. He was the door. And if a sheep tried to get out or a predator tried to get in, they have to get over the shepherd. Um, What's fascinating is when morning would come. A particular shepherd would come to the enclave with all these herds, And he would whistle or make whatever the sheep call is. And he would call his sheep and his entire flock would come out and all the others would stay. Because every sheep knows the voice of his shepherd. And Jesus is right. They will not follow another. Now, there's something profound about this. 
Um, I believe God calls everyone. I believe it's the Lord's desire that everyone come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's not his will that any would perish. But only his sheep hear his voice. And I don't want to get into like predestination, free will, Arminianism, but listen, his sheep hear his voice. And what Jesus sets up here, think this through. In the Greek, he's saying, I am the shepherd, the good. And if you look at that construction, that means there is a shepherd, the bad. If there's a good shepherd, there's a bad shepherd. There's good cops, bad cops, good doctors, bad doctors. What do you call the person who graduates last in medical school? Doctor, right? There's good and bad. And Jesus, talking about how he's the good shepherd, brings up the idea, verse 10, there is a bad shepherd, a thief, a robber. He doesn't own the sheep. They don't have this value. They can't hear his voice. What's this shepherd's motive? Steal, kill, and destroy. Uh, All the facts aren't in yet for 2019, but when they do come in, the city of Baltimore will have seen the highest murder rate in their history. 348 people were murdered in Baltimore. In 1993, when Baltimore notched its first all-time 353 killings, they had 130 more residents. So they're going to surpass that with 130,000 less residents this year. None of the largest 50 American cities approaches Baltimore's per capita death toll. This is 90 miles away. It rivals third world metropolises that are plagued like Baltimore by gang wars, corrupt politicians, and outmatched law enforcement agencies. Guatemala, El Salvador, the Honduras, you know, 2019 murder rates, 21.536, 41.2 per 100,000 residents, respectively. But these countries have all cut their murder tolls in half over the past five years. In contrast, Baltimore's murder total has climbed, get this, 65% since 2014. In America, 90 miles away. Last time I checked, Satan is still alive and well on planet Earth. And we're not here to go through the politics or why that happens. That's for another day and we'll leave it to other professionals. All I'm trying to say, there is an evil one. And, and listen, that's happening in Baltimore. But then in affluent areas, he's still stealing, killing, and destroying at the same rate. It just looks different. And he's clever. You know, no drug dealer walks up to you and says, man, you got to try these drugs. In two years, you'll lose your job, you'll be homeless, you'll probably die. You know, that's never the way it works, right? Satan's a liar, he's a master of it. He took Jesus one time and showed him the kingdoms of this world. I have no idea what that looked like. Showed him the kingdoms of this world. He said, all these are mine, I can give it to whoever I want. Of course, Jesus rejected that, but that's the voice of the popular culture. That's the voice I listened to for 21 years. That's the voice of those on the broad road leading to destruction. It's a very amplified voice. Satan has a lot of talent. A lot of talent on TV, the internet, songs, movies, video games. The flashing neon lights of the world about pleasure and sin and self-satisfaction and narcissism. People are listening. And then there's the voice of the good shepherd. 
And one of the beautiful things that happens at conversion is you get spiritual eyes and spiritual ears. Uh, the funniest thing I ever heard when I became a Christian, when I got around believers, because I used to drive pretty far to church and back and was never around Christians, but when I finally got around them, they would always use these phrases like, God told me. God told me to go here. God told me to go to this school. God told me to marry this person. I'm like, why doesn't God tell me anything? And then I realized God's not audibly telling them. He speaks through the Bible. You read the Bible and all of a sudden you get these thoughts and it's God leading. You know, his word is a lamp under his feet. He, he uses other people. He uses dreams. He uses visions. Sometimes God uses silly things that are peculiar to people. So in my life, God has always used my street that I lived on. We bought a home in Jersey. It was a new twin and it was in Southern Jersey. And I thought I had missed God because God had called me to plant this church. And I thought that dream was done and uh, moved them to our house. And seven months later, they finally put the street sign in and it said fellowship lane. And I knew I lived on fellowship lane, but when I saw the sign, it clicked. And what happened was we lived in such community from the people we met there, we actually started this church with that group of people we met. We had experienced true fellowship. Then we tried to move here. It didn't work out. We moved a mile away from where we were. And my street was David Drive. And it was a sign that, wow, we were still wandering in the wilderness. And then finally moved here, and we got to live with a wonderful couple in our church for two years. And we lived in their little apartment upstairs, and all my stuff was in storage. I didn't have to go to Home Depot. I didn't have to fix anything, buy anything. And it wasn't the street sign. It was when I came out of my door where I live, they had their last name in the garden. And what do you think it was? Grace. Grace. This was God's grace. We were building this church. I had teenagers. I was busy. God was giving me a respite. And then I moved to where I live now, Valley Drive, or Valley Road. And one day my secretary said to me, uh, Pastor Bob, do you know you now, you know that thing you do with signs? You live on Valley Road now. Oh, wait a second, what are you saying? Like, am I going through the valley of the shadow of, uh, is that what's going to, and it actually did. It, it actually was true. So, now, don't go home and look at your street sign. It's not how God speaks to you, it's how he speaks to me. But God has these ways of speaking to us. And for me, when God says things three times, that seals the deal for me. When I hear three different ways, three different times, I know it's God. Now, a lot of people say, well, how do you hear God's voice? Because I don't know if it's my voice or the devil's voice or God's voice. What do I do? Um, the Bible says that we all have to be on guard for the fiery darts of the enemy. So a fiery dart is when you're living life, things are good, and something comes out of left field. Some weird thought, some lustful thought, some crazy thought, like, what? Where'd that come from? That's usually not from God. Um, if something is pleasing to God, moving you towards God, moving you towards helping others, it's generally from God. If it's risk-oriented, it's generally from God. James says that the wisdom from above is first pure, then it's peaceable. In other words, over time, there's, yeah, God's in this. God has spoken this to me. Uh, Monica and I became Christians around a table one night saying a prayer. And what really pushed her over the hump 
is when the guy that was leading me to Christ, his girlfriend said, God told her to go to Villanova. And like the penny dropped for my wife, oh my gosh, I think I've known God all my life, but God talks to people? And maybe this is new to you. And if it is, sharpen your ears. Hear the voice of God. Now, there is one little tricky component. David writes Psalm 23, and listen, David was a shepherd and a sheep. It's like me, I'm a shepherd and I'm a sheep. And he writes Psalm 23, he says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside green pastures and still waters, and you know, he anoints my head with oil, and he makes a banquet in front of my enemies. You know, this is this beautiful piece of literature out of the mind of David, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But can I tell you what David didn't say? He didn't say, the Lord is my consultant. He didn't say, the Lord is my advisor. And a lot of Christians live that way. God, you can have 75% of my life, but when it comes to my sexuality, that's on me. Or when it comes to finances, I'll steer the ship on this one. And when it comes to where I live, and if I relocate, and, and you know, we can get down the list, the Lord's not your shepherd. He's just a little consultant. And I think the tricky side to hearing God's voice is to obey. See, this is what Saul never got right. Saul obeyed like 86% of the time. And obedience isn't some horrible thing. There is a joy to obedience. There's a peace to it. I was at my health club yesterday, and I was walking around the track. And a gentleman who was jogging stopped right next to me. We looked at each other, and I'm like, oh, and it was somebody from our church, one of the younger guys. And I said, oh, my gosh, you joined? Is this like a New Year's resolution? He said, no, I've been a member here. He said, but I do have a really cool New Year's resolution. I quit smoking. And I'm like, great, how'd you do that? He goes, well, I figured, like, I can't do it without God. So I told God, God, if you don't want me to smoke, I'm going to try as hard as I can. I'm going to you know, whatever I do, get the patch or whatever. And when I hit the wall, I need you. And he goes, I got started in January. I hit the wall. I told God I needed him. And here I am. It's the middle of February and uh, haven't had a cigarette. And I'm like, yes, that's how it works. Then he told me about tithing. He said, Pastor, about five years ago, I started tithing. I was really nervous, really scared. And you know, gosh, I started tithing, and, and I married a wife, and I've had a child, and I'm in a career that I love. He said, but kind of after all that, I, I, I pulled back a little. I, you know, I had bills, and I got fearful, and God spoke to me again. I started tithing again, and now I was just offered a job, and I don't want to take that job because I look where I am, and I brought it to my job I'm at, and they countered, and I just got a $20,000 raise. And I'm like, wow. And, and listen, God's not a celestial slot machine. You don't tithe, and then he gives you $20,000 pay increases. But this kid, and I say kid, he's in his 30s, is hearing the voice of God, and then he obeys. And that's what we need to do. The third thing the metaphor teaches us is that God protects us. It's very important. Sheep by nature can't defend themselves, right? There are no attack sheep, no Lambos out there, right? They're just, they're a free meal for most predators. And so they need the protection of a shepherd. Again, insight from the greatest shepherd king we've ever known, David. David's hearing about this trash-mouthing, 
Israel wrecking giant called Goliath. He's taunting the people of Israel. And no one wants to fight Goliath, and David volunteers. He goes to Saul, who's the king, and he said, I'll take on Goliath. And Saul's like, you're, you're a kid. I can't send you out to battle. And, and listen to what David says in 1 Samuel 17. He says to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. I was a shepherd. And when a lion or bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it. And I delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it rose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing that he has defied the armies of the living God. Here's where it gets really cool. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. You know what David knew that we struggle to know? David knew he was a man of skill. The upset of Goliath isn't the upset you've been taught to believe. Goliath was a clunky, armor-bearing, he was like a tank. And David was like an army ranger or a navy seal. Because when he was a shepherd, he had 10,000 hours taking a slingshot and smooth stones and killing predators. Maybe from 100 yards. He had 10,000 hours of, of you know, mining his craft, as we would say. But he's smart enough to know the Lord delivered me out of the paw of the lion and the bear. See, you get it, right? Like Moses was highly qualified. He learned organization in Pharaoh's house. But God had to strip him of that so we'd understand that it was of God's power. Paul was the only man smart enough to write Romans and much of the New Testament, but God had to strip him and use him. You know, this idea that I'm humble and weak and I don't know anything is baloney, okay? God has given us skill. He's given us minds. But David knew it was the Lord, and he knew if the Lord wasn't involved, he was toast. So when I became a Christian, I got saved in the charismatic moment and movement, and people say, oh, Pastor Bob, you threw out the baby with the bathwater. No, I didn't. You know, I'm still charismatic at my core. I'm not just, uh, uh, what's the word? I'm, in, I'm not in the charismania, okay? So I believe in the gifts of the Spirit. I believe God moves and heals and all that. But uh, there is one branch of the charismatic movement, if you've been in it or are still in it, called demonology. Anybody remember that? So there was like textbooks or manuals on how to fight demons, and you'd speak to the West and speak to the South. And I'm telling you, there's like this giant manual on how to fight demons. And then uh, one day I read this. Jesus looks at Peter, who, by the way, was a pretty strong guy. Like Peter packed, right? He had that sword and he cut Malchus's ear off in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. And the grammar is, and he can. But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Oh my gosh. Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, and he can, but I have prayed that your faith would not fail. Where's Peter's textbook? Where's his manual? You know what Peter learned that day? He didn't need a manual. He needed E-manual. 
He needed a great high priest that ever makes intercession for us. Michael the archangel fighting Satan for the body of Moses wouldn't bring an accusation against Satan. Now I know the weapons of our warfare aren't carnal and we have spiritual weapons. Most of them are standing in the word and standing firm and understanding who we are and who God is. Nowhere in the Bible does it say we're supposed to be fighting the kingdom of darkness on their level. There is a great high priest. There is a great shepherd who is watching over us. And the hireling is the opposite. The hireling flees. Why? He doesn't own the sheep. There's no value. He's just hired. He's just there to do a job. His concern, verse 12, is for himself. When bad times come, bad shepherds leave. Satan's not around when you're dying of lung cancer. He's not around when you get divorced. He's not around for all these things. Can I show you guys something really cool? And uh, I think everybody needs to know this because there's been so much harm done. Uh, we'll put 1 Peter 5 on the screen. Really worthy to understand this. Where Peter says, The elders who are among you I exhort, I am who a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory which shall be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not of dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor being as lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. I'm not here to judge anyone, but God has given us the ultimate shepherd, Jesus Christ. He has then given us under shepherds. I'm one of them. And I look at some under shepherds and I wonder if they believe the chief shepherd's ever coming. Because where they're leading people and how they're leading them, and Israel's a great example, I can't believe they ever thought the real shepherd was ever showing up. The adjectives here are plain. It's everything that a bad shepherd is. A bad shepherd does it out of compulsion. He does it out of money. He does it for dishonest gain. He's a lord over those who are entrusted to him. And Jesus said, many are going to come to me that day and say, we cast out demons and we did this in your name and we did that in your name. And he's going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me. You were workers of iniquity. They were hirelings. Um, I've been doing this long enough now, 27 years, where I think I can pontificate a little bit. Uh, I see a lot that's going on in the church. And if you stay at this church, if you leave this church, please take this with you wherever you go if you visit churches. Shepherds should smell like sheep. Okay? Shepherds should smell like sheep. First of all, they are sheep. Second of all, Jesus, our shepherd, dwelt among his people. Shepherds should be part of the flock. They should be involved with people. They should be doing things with people. I'm just somebody in this community. Sometimes I meet people out of here that used to go here and they'll say, you abandoned me. I'm like, well, wait a second. I'm at 500 Brandywine Drive five days a week. If you want to find me, this is where I am. I'm not running from anybody. And, and then I've learned this. Look, sheep belong to the great shepherd. They don't belong to me, Right? So God moves his people around. My job is not to keep sheep in the pen. My job is to feed and to protect. 
oh, Pastor Bob, I just heard so-and-so left or this person left. And I'm like, I can only love who's here. I don't own sheep. God moves them around. Some people from somewhere else will come here. The gospel reproduces. And my job is to love who's here. And I love you guys and I'll feed you and I'll protect you. I won't always make every decision you agree with. I might not preach your funeral or weddings or be at your birthday parties. But I will always feed you and I will always protect you. The hireling flees. He has no regard for the health of the sheep. It's all about him. It's all about gain. Uh, The next thing, and I'll be quick on this one, is in verse 16 back in John. Jesus said, other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them I must bring and they will hear my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now, the Mormons co-opted this verse and they'll tell you that Jesus said that one day the Mormon church would come and they're the other flock. It's ridiculous. Uh, Salvation was of the Jews. The other flock is Gentiles. We who were not part of the covenants, we were who were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He stripped the wall that was between us um, with the death on his cross. Now there's one door, one gate, one baptism, one Lord. And you get all this terminology in in the new covenant. How? Listen. Here's what the ultimate shepherd did. He laid his life down for the sheep. There is no other religious system where the founder was sinless and gave his life. That's why when Jesus says, I am the great shepherd, he's making himself one with God. And that's the accusation here, by the way. He's making himself one with God. And that's because he is God. And now we've become one by the blood of the Lamb. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. Wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and there are many on it. Few find the narrow gate. The gate is not narrow because it's hard. Please don't misunderstand. Christianity is not hard where we walk the straight and narrow. It's actually the opposite. It's narrow because it's one way. It's just logic. If there's one God, there's one way. So if I'm flying to Miami today in crappy February, I wish I was, at 2 o'clock on American Airlines, I would get a boarding pass and they would give me a gate. I couldn't walk to any gate. I can only walk to one gate. But this is what the world's told. All, all, gates, all gates go to Miami. Right? No, one gate goes to Miami. The beautiful thing is the gate is narrow, but as we walk it, it gets wider and wider. The wide road as you walk, it gets more narrow and narrower because this life is all you have. Enter through the narrow gate. And here's how I want to close this. All of this is on the heels of Jesus healing the man who was born blind. Over and over again, chapter 9 just hammers at us that this man was born blind because what it's telling us is every human being, everybody in this room, was born spiritually blind. You were born into a system, you believed that system, and there came a day where you heard the voice of God and you had to make a choice. You could stay on the wide road, which is permissible, all-inclusive, doesn't require anything of you, or you could switch lanes and there was a God you were always looking for, a master. In America, the 
caricature of the American from the rest of the world is we are the Marlboro man. The lone cowboy on a horse smoking a cigarette, calling our own shots, isolated. We got this. And what the Bible's saying is no, life couldn't be any farther than the truth. Life is all about finding the right master. Listen, I've been there and done it. Every child wants to be parented. Every player wants to be coached. Every employee wants to be led. It's as true as the day is long. The cry of the age is leadership. We just want to be mastered and led by the right shepherd. And it's through the door. And the door is grace. It's God's unmerited favor. We don't earn it. And he is there at the door. Whoever would answer the door, my father and I, would come in and dine with him. And finally, how about this promise? Verse 25, Jesus said, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name. They bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. And I will give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And no one will ever snatch them out of my hands. What we have given him, he is holding till the final day. For anybody who has ever given their life to Christ, who has really ever given their life to Christ, where that seed has gone in the good soil, he is keeping you until that final day. There's nothing to worry about. The joy that you experience now will be compounded hundred times over when you hear, well done, thou good and faithful steward. So if you're here this morning and you've been processing some of these things, and, and let me say this, if your answer to am I going to heaven is I'm a good person, um, you need to go on the remedial track, okay? That means you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand anything I said today. You don't understand the door. You just don't understand the gospel, and that's okay. Neither did I. The Bible says unequivocally in the book of Romans, there is none good, no, not one. Why does everybody keep saying they're so good? The Bible says not one. All have gone astray, not some, all. There is a God that you're looking for, and he longs for you to walk through that door. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord will never be your shepherd until he's your Lord. You can never say the Lord is my shepherd until you make the shepherd your Lord. That's how easy it is. And it's beautiful after that.